2: Good afternoon everyone.
1: Um, First I should say uh, to you, uh, Foreign Minister, uh, congratulations on your appointment. Uh, Last uh,
0: week, America's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, met Ranil Wickramasinghe, Sri Lanka's new president. He got straight to the point.
2: Uh, Obviously, uh, Sri Lanka is in a moment of uh, uh, challenge and uh, and crisis. In April,
3: Sri Lanka declared that it could no longer service its foreign
2: debt. And in June, annual inflation climbed to 55%.
0: By July, thousands of Sri Lankans had taken to the streets to express their frustration at the country's economic crisis.
3: While they were eventually successful in forcing the resignation of the former president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa.
2: The situation Mr. Wickramasinghe inherits is challenging, to say the very least. We see that uh, there is a huge obligation
1: on our part Uh, to put the country back on track Mm -hmm. and get its economy out of the woods that we are going through right now. But
0: rising prices, sluggish growth and sharply rising interest rates aren't just a problem for Sri Lanka. Debt loads across poorer
3: countries stand at the highest level in decades.
2: Which means more challenging moments could well lie ahead.
0: You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samea Keynes.
3: I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood.
0: And in today's show, the second part of our look at the strong dollar, and what it could mean for emerging markets.
2: First, we'll take a look at which countries are the most exposed.
4: Sri Lanka, I think, is a really interesting canary in the coal mine for some other emerging market economies. But I'm also looking at Ghana, Pakistan, Brazil, Egypt, Tunisia. All of these economies are in talks with the IMF.
3: Then, we will examine the events that precipitated what may have been one of the worst recessions the world had ever seen.
5: I told them a very old Mexican expression. We owe you money, I recognize it, but I don't have any money to
1: pay you back.
0: Finally, we'll ask what lessons have been learned since then.
1: Policy got a lot better in a lot of places after the crises of the 80s and 90s. Central banks worked harder to contain inflation. Governments became less prone to running big deficits, that sort of thing.
0: And we'll see whether those will be enough to prevent severe pain this time around. Hello, Mike and Alice. Hey, Simea.
2: Hello, from the land of extreme jet lag.
0: Yeah, Mike, how was the journey back to Singapore?
2: So the lessons were learned. Somebody made some sort of mistake about the distance between airports in Bangkok. Uh, Let's just leave it at that.
0: Someone. Hmm. sounds, Sounds unpleasant. And speaking of things that could become unpleasant, this week's episode continues from last week's one, which asked, what is behind the strong dollar?
2: That is right. But just in case some listeners missed out on last week's episode because they were doing something crazy like going on a summer holiday where they didn't listen to money talks for some reason, uh, do you want to quickly catch them up?
0: I would love to. We looked at how, according to our highly scientific Big Mac index, the dollar looks overvalued relative to other currencies.
3: My personal highlight was our extended discussion of the merits of the filet fish
2: Let's never speak of that again. Now a banned subject. No more fish on Money Talks. You
0: really like banning subjects, don't you, Mike?
2: I do. I do.
0: Well, then we went through the three factors behind the dollar's strength. The Fed is raising rates faster than other central banks to combat inflation. The US economy is still doing relatively well. There was just that blockbuster jobs report on Friday. And then finally, the dollar is where investors tend to go when they're feeling anxious.
3: And plenty of investors are feeling very anxious right now.
0: The risk is, though, that as investors run towards the safe haven of the dollar, they're setting off fires behind them. A strong dollar can really damage economies where there's lots of debt denominated in dollars, like Sri Lanka, as we heard at the beginning. Or it can hurt in countries importing lots of stuff priced in dollars, like oil and gas. Right.
2: Right. And to get a better picture of just which countries are particularly exposed and what the main areas of stress are, I wanted to bring back Megan Green. Those of you who were listening last week, first off, Gold Star, but second, you'll remember that she's a senior fellow at Brown University and global chief economist for Kroll. Megan, welcome back.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on again.
2: So there's been a lot of concern about the strength of the dollar, particularly as it relates to these developing economies. Where are you looking at particularly as sort of areas of stress or vulnerability?
4: So in terms of geography, Sri Lanka, I think, is a really interesting canary in the coal mine for some other emerging market economies. But I'm also looking at Ghana, Pakistan, Brazil, Egypt, Tunisia, all of these economies are in talks with the i m f They're all facing much higher import costs in in large part because the dollar has appreciated significantly, but also because food and energy costs have increased so much, and I think they're all sort of stuck facing the same decision that Sri Lanka had to make, which was do you use your foreign exchange reserves to pay off foreign creditors or do you use them for subsidies for you know the essentials food and energy for your population. In Sri Lanka's case they decided to do the latter and ended up defaulting in May. Um, For these other economies I think it's still in question.
2: So how can governments in these countries avoid problems like Sri Lanka's or is it just too late? What sort of tools do they actually have at their disposal?
4: Yeah, so the best approach is to beef up your, your foreign exchange reserves. The other thing you can do is to reduce your current account deficit so that you're not as exposed externally. So you can do it by improving your exports. And one way to do that is to boost your competitiveness or to focus on developing export industries. And you can also reduce your imports. So try to find substitutions that you can make locally. That's probably the easiest, most straightforward way to do it. And, you know, a lot of the structural reforms that the IMF ends up insisting on when countries go and ask for a bailout are focused on trying to help figure out, you know, what the country's strengths are, how they can become more competitive, how they can support export sectors. So part of it is to address current account imbalances. Countries can, of course, do that proactively without the IMF forcing them to.
2: And, you know, we're talking about this in terms that are probably familiar. The IMF, the World Bank, the U.S. is the biggest lender to some of these countries. But what about China? What role does China play here? We saw during the pandemic the creation of this common framework, which is an effort by the G20 to get government and private creditors on the same page when it comes to restructuring government debts that have gotten out of hand. How does that all work?
4: So China is the world's biggest bilateral creditor now. And it's tricky because nobody knows the terms of China's loans except for China. But China has been pretty reluctant to restructure uh, any of those loans. We know this because during the pandemic, Three low income countries needed to restructure their debt, went and asked for access to something called the Common Framework, which means that all the G20 countries, the Paris Club members, China, and private creditors will get together in a room and agree to the same terms of a debt restructuring for the low income country. Um, so, three countries have asked for access to this. No debt restructuring has happened yet. Uh, and it's partly because nobody knows the terms of China's loans. And so as they sit around a table together, nobody wants to accept terms of a debt restructuring thinking that maybe their debt restructuring will go towards allowing or enabling the country to pay off China. So this is a huge problem. The common framework only actually applies to low-income countries. With Sri Lanka in particular, there was a question about whether Sri Lanka would say, well, why don't you have the common framework apply to middle-income countries too? Because Sri Lanka is a middle-income country. Uh, it, it made motions towards that and China shut them down immediately. So it seems like China isn't a particularly efficient participant in the common framework to begin with. We can't really expect the common framework to be applied to middle income economies that are going to get into trouble. And so China's an incredibly tricky creditor for everyone to be negotiating with.
2: We spoke a little last week about the dollar smile, which uh, for those people who for some reason didn't listen, it's the theory that the dollar strengthens both when the US economy is doing well, but it also paradoxically when it's doing particularly poorly, when you have a lot of money flowing into safe assets, mostly treasuries. So is it possible that there might not even be a sort of upside for emerging markets, even if the U.S. economy really slows down in the sense that you're still going to see considerable dollar strength, or it's possible that you will see that?
4: So you might see considerable dollar strength, although I think that recent dollar strength has been driven primarily by monetary policy divergences. So, for example, the Fed is hiking rates really aggressively, is suggesting it will continue to hike rates really aggressively, whereas other major central banks are unable to. So the ECB in the eurozone, for example, um, is not expected to be able to hike rates aggressively because of the, you know, lower potential growth, but also challenges for eurozone economies posed by um, reduced gas flows from Russia. So that monetary policy divergence has has strengthened the dollar. Um, I think that if the U.S. goes into a recession next year and the Fed ends up having to cut rates, that monetary policy divergence might be reduced, in which case the dollar might not remain as strong as it is. So in some ways, the best bet for emerging markets might be a recession in the U.S. because it might weaken the dollar and borrowing costs should fall as the Fed cuts rates. But you know. Hoping for a recession in the biggest economy in the world is is not the best strategy because, of course, the, the U.S. is a source of export demand for a lot of these emerging markets as well.
2: Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me. That is all really
0: interesting. So essentially, the common framework that was created after the pandemic that was supposed to help precisely in situations like this only applies to a pretty narrow set of countries.
3: Right. And one of the creditor groups Megan mentioned, the Paris Club, is sort of the original version of that common framework idea. You know, the idea is that all of the creditor countries get in a room and come up with a plan to solve a debt crisis. The event that precipitated the Paris Club meeting for the first time in 1956 was that Argentina had defaulted.
0: Now, Argentina is pretty special when it comes to debt defaults. It's seen a few. But since we love a bit of history on this show, I thought it might be fun to go back and look at a time when it was part of a struggling group of countries – That was in our favourite period, the 1980s, when Paul Volcker was tightening monetary policy at the Fed and emerging markets were not having a good time of it.
2: I feel like at this point we should all be dressing exclusively in Calvin Klein, listening to Fleetwood Mac. We spend so much time in the 1980s.
0: That sounds like
3: a great idea to me, Mike. Anyway, Simea, why don't you take it away?
0: To understand why the Fed's decision to dramatically raise interest rates in the early 1980s had such a devastating effect in Latin America, you have to go back even further. Starting at the beginning of the 1970s, countries like Mexico, Venezuela, Bolivia and Argentina went on a borrowing spree. That was fine when interest rates were low, but as Paul Volcker began tightening, the cost of servicing their debt increased. The tightening also made the dollar stronger, and that made debt denominated in dollars more expensive to service. It all came to a head in 1982.
5: I told them a very old Mexican expression. We owe you money, I recognize it, but I don't have any money to pay you back.
0: That's when Mexican finance minister Jesus Silva Erzo Flores told the world that the country would stop paying the interest on its $80 billion of debt. By the end of the year, more than three dozen countries had fallen behind on their debt repayments. American banks were very exposed to these troubled countries and the Fed got worried about the stability of the financial system. So it helped broker an agreement, along with the IMF and other central
5: banks. Officials from more than 100 of the world's largest banks emerged today from the New York Federal Reserve Bank after meeting to discuss the money Mexico owes those banks, about $80 billion. The problem is that half of it comes due within the next year, and Mexico can't pay it.
0: The deal included debt restructuring, temporary loans, and reforms, including massively painful public spending cuts.
3: Launching their economic adjustment program, the government imposed sharp increases in the
2: prices of food and fuel.
0: By some measures, the economic contraction that followed was worse than the Great Depression. It sparked protests and calls for leniency from international lenders. So in 1989, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady came up with a plan that he unveiled in a speech to the Brookings Institution and the Bretton Woods Committee.
5: However, we believe that the time has come for all members of the community to consider new ways that we may contribute to the common effort.
0: Private lenders would forgive nearly a third of the outstanding debt in return for economic reforms. He broke his reasoning into five
5: parts. First. Obviously, financial resources are scarce. Can they be used more effectively? Second, we must recognize that reversing capital flight offers a major opportunity since, in many cases, flight capital is larger than the outstanding debt. Third, there is no substitute for sound policies. Fourth, we must maintain the important role of the international financial institutions and preserve their financial integrity. Fifth, we should encourage debt and debt service reduction on a voluntary basis while recognizing the importance at the same time of continued new lending.
0: And he said explicitly that he wanted the plan to provide a template, not just for this crisis, but for others that could eventually arise.
5: Finally, we must draw together these elements to provide debtor countries with a greater hope for the future.
0: The reaction to the plan was initially mixed. Some worried about whether it gave Latin American countries bad incentives.
2: The proposal is that debt should be redeemed broadly in line with market prices. Therefore, it's in a government's interest to get the market price of its debt as low as it possibly can. And the way to do that is to misbehave.
0: But eventually, the region managed to make its way out of its lost decade something Nicholas Brady counted as an achievement when he eventually resigned from the Treasury Department in 1993.
5: Today, 12 of the 16 major debtor countries have reached agreements to reduce or refinance their debts. These agreements cover 92%, or some $240 billion, of their outstanding commercial bank debt. And debt reduction and economic reform has revitalized Latin economies. Growth has improved, inflation has fallen by two-thirds, and some 40 billion in new private capital flowed into the region in just 1991 and 1992, eight times the 1989 level. And the entire U.S. economy has benefited, as export to growing Latin economies have increased by over 80% in the last four years. A burden has been lifted.
2: And for a lot of these countries, this wasn't even the, the last sort of crisis that they saw in, in the next decade. You had Mexico going through repeated uh, economic and financial crises. You then had the Asian financial crisis just a little more than a decade later, a huge event in East and Southeast Asia, all along the same sort of themes of dollar-denominated debt and the sort of debt excesses that these countries hadn't predicted while they were borrowing quite so much money.
0: Right. Well, well, after the break, we're going to look at what lessons have been learned from all of those prior crises that maybe could help emerging markets this time around. But before that...
3: It is our favourite time of the show where...
2: You are going to be shocked to find out that we are going to ask you to subscribe to The Economist.
0: For those of you who remember our episode looking at how Germany came to rely so heavily on Russian gas... Our colleagues, who you heard in that episode, Christian Odendahl and Wendelin von Bredo, have a long piece looking at the new Germany.
3: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
2: If you are already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should consider signing up to our newsletters too, both Money Talks and The Bottom Line at economist.com slash newsletters.
0: Both of those links are in the notes for this episode.
4: Now,
0: I want to bring in someone who is probably familiar to many listeners, Ryan Avent. He is our current trade and economics editor. Ryan, hello.
1: Hello, Samia.
0: How have you been? How was your summer?
1: Oh, it's, it's been a good summer, a hectic one. I moved house, got COVID, lots of emerging markets news to cover, but pretty okay on the whole.
0: All, all the big events. Great. Well, We've been hearing from Megan Green about which economies she thinks are most exposed to the strong dollar. And then I just took Alice and Mike on a history tour of the 1980s Latin American debt crisis. So with you, I want to talk about three things. First, I want to hear your analysis of which countries' economies seem most fragile And then I want to understand why you think this time might be better than, say, the 1980s or even later debt crises like the ones we saw in the late 1990s. And then finally, I want to know what you think policymakers should do about it. Does that plan work for you?
1: That sounds great.
0: So walk us through your analysis. Where do you think the trouble spots are?
1: Well, we recently published a a piece that looked at just this question. And as part of the piece, we identified 53 economies that we thought looked particularly vulnerable. It's not necessarily the big heavyweights in terms of GDP. They only account for about 5% of world output. But there are a lot of people in these countries, about 1.4 billion or about a fifth of the world's population. And so the way that these debt problems develop really is going to have a huge impact on a lot of people. It includes some big and important countries, though. I mean, places like Nigeria and Egypt, uh, as well as a lot of smaller places. But for the moment, economies like Brazil and Turkey, which have had some difficulties over the past year, which account for quite a large share of GDP, those are not quite in that list of countries of greatest concern. But they could be, depending on how things develop.
0: Okay, but for now, those big ones are not in the kind of emergency list. so it it sounds like there are quite a few countries that one might have expected to be lumped in this kind of ems in trouble bucket, but for now they're sitting fairly smugly on the side. Why is that? How have they managed to escape this classic cycle of, of boom and bust?
1: So it is true that a, a lot of the big economies that were, constant sources of concern in the 80s and 90s really aren't that worrying this time around. And I think that's partly about the fact that, that policy got a lot better in a lot of places after the crises of the 80s and 90s. Central banks worked harder to contain inflation. Governments became less prone to running big deficits, that sort of thing. They also sort of built up their defenses against global market turmoil by accumulating big stocks of foreign exchange reserves. But you know, I think if we think about the broader trajectory It does remain to be seen how difficult a situation we find ourselves in. You know, we in the 1960s and 1970s, there was this era of pretty good performance across emerging markets. And at the end of that period of good times, when growth slowed down, debt burdens started to become, you know, much harder to bear. And then we had these two decades of really underperformance. And so, you know, we have to be aware that that could happen again. Countries that look sound now may find that they have more to worry about than we think.
0: Okay, so don't be complacent, essentially. You didn't mention China when you were talking about, you know, which countries were were vulnerable. How safe is China looking right now?
1: Well, China is a really interesting case. It's obviously a massively important economy. Uh, It's an economy that has accumulated a lot of debts, both on the government side and across corporations and even households. And those debts are a matter of concern. I think we should be concerned that as it tries to deal with unsustainable debts and deleverage and balance different interests, that growth in China slows dramatically and stays low. That would be bad for for China itself, but it would also be bad for most of the emerging world because of the huge role that China plays, you know, buying things from other emerging markets, resources and things of that nature, and also investing in other emerging markets. Uh, And so that ends up being another piece of the puzzle, that China has become a massive lender to low and middle income economies. It's unclear how that's going to interact with China's domestic problems, whether they'll be less willing to kind of stand by countries that are in need of financial help, but You know, it is going to be crucial to see how China's economy develops and how it approaches its debts to poorer countries, which seem like they can no longer service those debts.
0: Yeah, on that, I mean, Megan was talking about this essentially new way of approaching debt sustainability and haircuts, and and suggesting that perhaps China wasn't being particularly straightforward when it came to to writing off debt. What makes you pessimistic that it's not going to play ball?
1: Well, I think. The reason to be pessimistic is that, you know, China has become a massive lender, that it actually, over the past couple of decades, its role has come to be larger as a lender to, to poorer countries. And so it has a lot to lose if, if a bunch of countries go bust and can't afford to repay. I think that is a thing that weighs on it as it decides how to deal with individual countries, that if it offers too much debt relief to one place, suddenly it may find lots and lots of governments demanding more debt relief. But then you could also sort of flip it around and say, you know, because China is so important, because its support for poor countries is so important, a lot of places may be reluctant to ask for help from China. And because they're reluctant to ask for help, these debt crises sort of linger on and continue to weigh on growth for years and years instead of, you know, us having a situation where things get resolved more quickly and then growth can resume. So unfortunately, there is, there is plenty to be pessimistic about.
0: Okay, it sounds like the best thing to do, though, is if some kind of debt restructuring is inevitable, then China should really sort that out early in an orderly way so that you don't get crises blowing up. Let's now talk about what other policymakers should be doing about this. You started out by saying there were these 53 countries. They represent around 5% of global GDP, but nearly a fifth of the world's population. That's a lot of people who could be affected if economies go sour. What do you think policymakers should be doing to help them or prevent these problems from getting much worse?
1: Well, it's a really important question. And I I think, broadly speaking, you want to kind of divide this set of troubled countries into two different groups. One group are low-income economies, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also some in in Asia and Central America and the Caribbean, which are places that aren't really huge players on global financial markets. Were hit very hard by the pandemic and have debts that they just really can't service. And this is a huge issue for humanitarian reasons, because if they're not able to kind of fund themselves and things of that nature, they can't invest in public health and education and infrastructure, the things they need to develop. And so I think what's ultimately going to be required to help these countries is is quite a lot of debt relief. The rich world has done this before. It did it with low-income countries in the 1990s. And I think there's actually a willingness to do this now across rich countries and and the IMF and and the World Bank. You know, the issue that we sort of have touched on is that quite a lot of the debt that these countries owe is owed now to China, to to India, to private creditors. And so there needs to be some sort of way of getting those players on board with the rich countries and with the big multilateral institutions. You know, that should be doable. You know, geopolitics makes it more complicated. But that's really what's going to be required, is getting these countries some sort of debt relief so that they can get back to doing what they need to do to develop. Then on the other side, you've got these more middle-income countries who are more involved in in financial markets. And I think, you know, the IMF is well-equipped to kind of help a lot of these countries with either preemptive lending or with programs to help them get out of trouble. What would really be useful is if we could sort of start to tackle the big global macroeconomic problems that are really complicating the situation. And, you know... Obviously, it would be nice if the if Russia's war in U- Ukraine would end so that there would be less pressure on countries that are having trouble affording imports of oil and food and things of that nature. But I think also, you know, post-pandemic, it would be nice if there were more global solidarity, if there were more of an effort to kind of improve investment flows from the rich world to, to poor countries, to maybe start thinking again about strengthening the global trade regime, which has really suffered over the last four to five years trying to rebuild the global economy, because the alternative is going to be a world where many of these countries suffer a lost decade, at least. And that's just frankly, not something that's going to be good in terms of political stability, in terms of humanitarian outcomes, in terms of preparing for the harms of climate change. We'd really like to avoid that.
0: Oh, okay. Not much at stake then. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thanks, you ma'am.
0: So Alice, Mike, any final thoughts?
2: Yeah, for me, it's a sort of grim reminder of how a lot of developed countries are sort of playing uh, economic policy on easy mode. We talk a lot on the podcast about inflation and the weird economic consequences of the pandemic in the rich world, but it's just so much worse for the countries facing these sort of pressures as emerging or frontier markets, especially those with sort of spotty financial records. When you've got no control over stuff like Fed policy, but it affects you so much, it's pretty grim, yeah.
3: The thing that is so vicious about you know, economic shocks when you're in an emerging market country is that it is easy for those to sort of domino into one of these sort of spiraling debt crises. You know, if you've maybe you ran your economy a little too hot, monetary policy was a little too loose during the boom times, you ran up a current account deficit, a fiscal deficit a little bigger than you should have. And then a couple shocks come along and you start to get this sort of really vicious cycle of capital flight and currency depreciation. Your FX reserves start to sort of dwindle. And it can be really, really difficult once those very vicious dynamics have taken hold to sort of pull things back and get yourself out of that situation. And that's why it's so important that you have... The capacity to break that cycle, ideally in those kind of negotiations with policymakers or, or your creditor countries, and particularly the idea that China might not be playing ball on those, does sound like however difficult it was to potentially intervene in or, or fix the EM crisis in the past, it's much harder to do it now.
0: Yeah, I think just building on that, one of the really challenging dynamics you can get is when a country says look, this is really a temporary problem. We just need a temporary loan to tie us over until after this panic subsides, this irrational panic. But if you're a creditor and looking at them, you might say, "Mm, we're worried that good money is just going to be going after bad. And actually, we're worried that it's a permanent problem, and there needs to be a permanent fix. And so the policy challenge is working out when problems are just temporary, because you've got these temporary shocks, and when they're structural, um, and you do actually need economic reforms. But with that, I think we should go on to our stats of the week. Alice, do you want to go first?
3: Yes, happily. My stat of the week this week is about a week behind the news, but it was too good not to do. It is 18 percentage points, which was the margin in the Kansas referendum on abortion rights. Uh, Voters in Kansas voted 59 to 41 to keep the protections in their state constitution for abortion up to 22 weeks, which after the direction of abortion rights in America was the sort of welcome pushback to that, uh, coming from a, a deep, deep red state, typically.
0: OK, well, I'm going to go next with what is a very gloomy stat of 82%. That's the amount that Cornwall Insights, this consultancy in, in the UK, predicted that energy bills are going to rise in Britain this coming autumn. That's going up from around £2,000 a year for the average household to over £3,000 a year. A lot of people are really going to struggle with that unless some kind of government assistance is forthcoming.
2: More of the sort of cheery statistical content that everyone comes to Money Talks for. Um, my figure is three point one six trillion, and that is the loss in Japanese yen made by SoftBank Group in the second quarter. Their results have just come out. That's about twenty three billion US dollars. Absolutely enormous losses in the uh, Vision Funds, the sort of uh, the funds that the company has, which invest in a lot of public and private tech companies which, as uh, regular listeners will know, have been just absolutely battered this year. So pretty grim for them. Uh, they're having a really bad year.
3: I swear all of your stats are denominated in Japanese yen, it's just to make them sound more impressive
2: eh? It sounds bigger. I should just turn any that aren't, you should turn yours, in fact, any not denominated in yen, just turn it into yen. They all sound enormous. It's great.
0: And with that, our thanks this week go to Megan Green.
2: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us and send your statistics just to me at podcasts at
0: Today's show was produced by Alan Habercheck. Our editor was Kim
2: Gittelson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast.
0: I'm Simea Keynes. I'm Alice Fulwood.
2: I'm Mike Bird.
0: And this is The Economist.
1: Only from rust